Johan hated working at Drog's home. While the structure was beautiful, he had learned in school about the prisoners held in the castle for everything from heresy to treason. He did not like the idea of sharing a space with all those memories. But he needed the money. So he accepted the plumbing job and walked the nine miles it took to reach the castle from his house. A buggy ride was too expensive, and he could only dream of owning a car one day. Perhaps when he was rich, like the American tourists. It was normal to hear rats moving around the old space as the Baron's new touches were added. The frantic scraping of claws along the metal pipes offered a strange kind of music as the storm clouds rolled in. Johan swung his hammer into the wall. He saw a flash of something reach through the hole, but it was gone when he tried to grab it. Rats didn't scream. They chewed and clawed and squeaked, but they did not scream. It defied all logic, but some primal part of him said that someone needed help. Johan ripped pieces of the wall away, revealing the older stones beneath. He attacked the mortar with the claws of his hammer. The screams grew louder as he pulled stones free. His arms burned as he fought the wall itself, clawing to get what was behind it. Only when he breathed again, did he see he'd made a hole big enough to search through. He lit a match and reached out into the void. There was a flicker of pale fabric first, so white it was nearly dust. He adjusted his position so he could push his other hand into the darkness that threatened to swallow up the match's meager light. He gently pulled at the strands, his fingers searching blindly. They found something cold and hard, felt along the length of the small shape, found a joint, a hand. Then, something pulled back. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Drog's home castle, a 13th century Danish fortification that is said to play host to over 100 ghosts, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Drogsholm Castle is so named because it was a place where ships sailed on land. The fortification stands overlooking the Nexulu Bay on Zealand, 
the largest and most populous island in Denmark, after Greenland. During the Viking Age, mariners discovered it was actually safer to beach their ships and pull them across the 200-meter bit of land between Otsair and the rest of the island than to deal with the rough seas off the coast. The area became known as a dragging place, or Drog. Before Drog's home castle's current iteration, there is a previous structure with a mix of Gothic and Roman architecture built in the late 1100s. By 1215, the building developed the box with a courtyard ground plan we see today. It would be updated in the 15th century to keep up with the Renaissance style. But after a four-month siege during a Danish civil war, it was partially converted into a prison to hold the political and religious enemies of the winner of that war the newly crowned Christian III. To be in prison in Drogsholm was a kind of living death. There was no hope of clemency or acquittal. You would spend your days in wretched cells, listening to your captors cavorting up above while rats skittered below. Eiler Clausen Brockenhus was used to being hated his noble peers sneered at him as he passed by at local functions, calling him the Mad Squire to imply he didn't belong at court with them. He was the second son of the third son, as if it mattered. He was the survivor, the usurper, the one who was only invited when he had to be invited. His brother's advantageous marriage had caused those invitations to multiply, but the courtier's attitudes did not change. He decided to play the villain, since he'd already been cast. He told his servants to report his death, keeping the truth from all but his valet and a few accommodating pallbearers. He greatly enjoyed listening to the noble's honey-tongued eulogies, but his favorite moment by far was when he leaped out of the coffin, yelled boo, and ran away laughing, as the ladies-in-waiting and even a few of the courtiers fainted straight away. The rumors began to swirl. He had murdered his sister. Or was it his mother? There was the plot against the king, which was true, but he'd elegantly ducked the punishment with a bit of rapier wit and blackmail. He wore his scorn for the gentry like a fur cape, reveling in the heat that came to their cheeks when he arrived at a ball or council meeting. But his new wife was not as self-assured. His brother's body had not yet gone cold when Eiler began his seduction of his sister-in-law, Magreta. While she fell for his charms easily, he could tell that the circumstances of their affair bothered her. Still, it seemed to be the only thing that bothered her about him, which left her in little company indeed. She believed in his redemption, and who was he to deny her if she wished to absolve him of his sins in her embrace? King Frederick II had other plans. Eiler had received a summons from the king to discuss his behavior. He chose to flee with Margreta instead. Eiler hated the idea of being under anyone's control, so he and Magreta had run as far as they could. It was a royal ball that brought them back. 
If there was a member of Eiler's social circle he liked least, it was King Frederick. Every supposed advice of Eiler's was shared by the monarch. But did he get accused of killing his family? No, he did not. Magreta had wanted to attend, and as always, he could not deny her. He had a dress commissioned for her, and hired a carriage to take them all the way to Drogsholm. The invitation had said they would be guests of honor, and Magreta, in all her innocence, had been touched, excited. Eiler suspected they were about to face a very awkward night, and a potential court case. Magreta kissed his fears away. She told him that forgiveness was next to godliness, and no one was closer to God than the king. They could start their life together in full view of society now. The king had pardoned them. True to the invitation, they were announced as honored guests. They danced and chatted with other nobles. The men who used to balk at being invited to the same event as him were now gleefully shaking his hand and carrying on what they thought were highbrow conversations. Eiler found himself looking left and right, waiting for a tittering of laughter from behind him, a spill on his shirt that was supposedly an accident, a barbed remark in soft tones. But nothing came. Instead, people wanted to know what he had to say. They agreed with him. They encouraged him. With his brother dead, he had truly become the first son. Eiler found himself being swept up in the heady sensation of acceptance. Magreta was the belle of the ball, but he was certainly the toast of the evening. But the king had yet to put in his appearance. His throne sat empty in the great hall as everyone mingled in the space in front of it. They ate a sumptuous feast before returning to the hall once more. Eiler felt the cold metal against his skin before he saw the guards. The smiles of the nobles around him grew wider. They had all known this was coming. One last humiliation from the king. Frederick was perhaps more interesting than Eiler had given him credit for. Eiler asked the guards if he was permitted a moment to speak with the king, to congratulate him on manipulating Eiler back to his godforsaken castle. The guards kicked him at the back of the knees in response. Prisoners didn't get to make requests. As they dragged him out of the hall, Eiler tried to find Magreta's radiant face in the jubilant crowd. He found her as the great door was just about to close. But she did not sob the way he had expected. One perfect tear slid down her porcelain cheek, falling until it reached her smiling lips. His dungeon cell was damp and cold. Water dripped from the ceiling into a puddle on the floor. There was a window but he could see nothing but yawning darkness. For hours, he sat in silence. Then, he heard something. It sounded like Magreta. Her gentle footfalls were out of place in the dingy darkness, and he had to swallow his own impulse to tell her to turn back. He moved closer to the bars to check the hallway. In the low light, he could barely make out her dainty feet, 
but they weren't connected to a body. The feet paced the corridor, back and forth in front of Eiler's cell. He watched them closely, trying to figure out the trick of the light. He had decided that Magreta's smile had been a sad one, an act of self-preservation. But Court was cruel, and Magreta was hopelessly naive. His mind raced with visions of his beautiful wife being set on the long dining room table in the great hall, the carving knife cutting through her ankles. The sour sting of vomit filled his nostrils. A moment later, he realized it was his own. Near dawn, the noises stopped. Eiler had visions of the guards bringing Magreta down to his cell, piece by piece. But instead, he was tossed a gray-looking slab of meat and then left alone. His mind whispered to him that the meat might be what was left of his beloved. He could not eat it. The next night came, and there were no feet wandering by his cell. The spell had been broken. Perhaps Magreta had been saved. A head covered in sheets of dark hair peeked into his cell. He could not see a face. The longer he stared, the more he noticed the breaks in the skin along the scalp. Slowly, two horns started to protrude. They broke through the skin and grew, curving outwards and then inwards at the very top. Blood splattered along his skin in a mist, and then a spray as the horns widened in the skull. The demonic head's inky hair moving softly with every animalistic breath. Just as quickly as the head had appeared, it was gone, its horns fading into the night. He woke in the night because he could not move his head. The horns that had sprouted from the faceless head were now on either side of his neck. The stale stench of death hit his face. Eiler shut his eyes tightly. He could feel the horns growing again, twining around his neck and squeezing. A slab of meat hit the stone floors. The creature was gone. Eiler raced to the bars and asked the guards if they had seen the foul beast that had tried to trap him in this place. They only turned their backs and walked away. Eiler let the cold bars soothe his heated skin. He felt around his neck and found tiny nicks surrounded by tight, almost burned skin. That night, he dreamt of his skull pushing out of his head. He woke with the roar of his own screams echoing in his ears and a pounding at his forehead that wouldn't leave. Magreta finally came to see him. He'd waited for her, fought off his nightmares, hoping to look upon her face one more time before death took him. She was clearly changed, cold, self-possessed. He had been tricked. She had beaten him, and somehow it had made him love her more. 
She put her hands through the bars, and he held on to them. But he must have held too tightly, because her bones crumbled in his hands. He apologized profusely, but she did not make a sound. When she opened her mouth, moths flew out. They flapped around his head, blocking out his vision. By the time he was free of them, she was gone. Eiler could not spend another moment trapped in the confines of his imagination. Surely this was some trick his brain had conjured to keep himself occupied. Although moths continued to spill into Eiler's cell, none of the guards appeared to notice them. The horned creature visited him again. He asked what he could have done to deserve such attention. The creature began to pull its hair out. Long strands of black fell to the floor and became wriggling eels, then asps slinking towards him, only to dissolve in smoke and ash. The creature was bald now, but it wasn't a creature to him anymore. It was the face of his sister, the one he'd held closely as he stabbed her over and over again. The wounds in her midsection were bleeding again, and the floor was slick with iron-tinged red. He began to scream until icy hands pressed against his heart. The sound died in his throat as she squeezed. There was no emotion in her face, just a cold curiosity. The sort of expression he had worn as he killed her. Eiler begged her to let him live. For the briefest of instants, her face was replaced by Magretta's smile. The two merged into an abomination. You have many more years to wish you were dead, a voice whispered in his ears. She let go of his heart, and Eiler's breathing slowed. But he knew he was being watched and that he would never be alone again. Eiler Brockenhus committed numerous crimes in the late 16th century, including murdering his mother and sister, plotting the demise of the king, and accidentally blowing up a servant while investigating the effects of gunpowder. Brockenhus had begun an affair with Magreta Ronsau, his brother-in-law's widow, she soon became pregnant, and both of them were summoned to meet the king in 1581. They chose to run instead, but Brockenhus was captured and imprisoned in 1582. It's said that his groans can still be heard in the old dungeon areas. Brockenhus spent 25 years imprisoned at Drogsholm Castle, despite multiple appeals to the king. He was left below to be forgotten for a quarter of a century, but at least they fed him. Other victims of Drogsholm Castle weren't so lucky. When we come back, we'll meet a far more unexpected prisoner in Drogsholm Castle, and she did it all for love. Now, back to the story. It is said that Drogsholm is home to over 100 ghosts, but two are most prominent, a white lady and a gray one. 
You might think these castle ghost staples would be vague and quiet, but the legends of Drogsholm Castle's two poster women couldn't be more different or more strange. The Grey Lady is a strangely happy ghost. This medieval serving girl worked at Drogsholm and struggled with a painful toothache. The master of the castle gave her a poultice to cure her pain, but she passed away shortly after. It's said that she haunts the castle as a benevolent spirit, seeking to do good deeds to show her gratitude. The White Lady is another matter entirely. While the Grey Lady searches for ways to help, the White Lady hopes to find the person she's lost, the one person she can't ever have. Selina Bovles and her father Hans had rarely ever been on the same page. While he was practical, she was less so. He feared that the passions of the French Revolution would make it to their shores and put the nobility at risk. She disliked the radicals' methods, but believed her class could use a little shaking up, a reminder of their responsibility to the lower classes. Despite their quarrels, Selina had always loved her father. He listened to her, even if he didn't agree. Until it came to the subject of marriage. Hans had called Selina to dinner with the king. On their way down, he explained that he had accepted a proposal for her. She was to be married the next year to a fellow nobleman, Ludwig Hansen. Ludwig had gone through three wives already. He was nearing 70, and Selina had only just turned 20. It was not what she wanted, but her father would hear no argument against him. Selina had always enjoyed the winter solstice balls in the past, but now she spent the night studying Ludwig's face across the sea of jubilant people. He smiled at her wolfishly, and a shiver of unease slipped through her. She would not survive a lifetime with this man, just as the three women who came before her had not. She began to take refuge in the courtyards of Drogsholm, watching the sky change and the leaves fall, her doom approaching. But then she met Frederick. He had brown hair, brown eyes, weathered hands, and a sense of compassion that she had never encountered within the walls of the castle. He took great pride in tending to the castle gardens as a groundskeeper's apprentice. Selina was in love. She tried desperately to explain that she couldn't marry Ludwig, to convey how deeply she loved Frederick. But one look from her father told her he did not care about her childish fantasies about courtly love. But her and Frederick's love had moved beyond courtly very, very fast. Selina soon realized she had missed several courses. She was pregnant with Frederick's child and she would not be able to conceal it for long. Ludwig might still marry her, but he would make her pay for her love. She needed an escape. Frederick promised to meet her at two in the morning outside the Great Hall. From there, they would make it on foot as far as they could before reaching port. Selina would pawn her jewelry to pay for the ride, 
and they would be out of Denmark in a day. Selina paced in her room for hours. Time slowed to a crawl as she waited to meet her fate. She was more scared than she wanted to admit. As a noble, she'd never even had to dress herself, let alone cook a meal, take care of a child. Frederick had reassured her, but he did not know the particulars of pregnancy, and they would have to leave behind anyone they could ask about the subject. A life with Ludwig wasn't a life at all, but there was so much uncertainty and hardship in the life she was choosing. She reminded herself how safe she felt in Frederick's arms, how it all fell away when he held her. She slipped out of her room, her cloak wrapped tightly against the cold, concealing a small satchel on her back. The castle guards paid her no mind as she wandered the familiar hallways, silently saying goodbye to the walls that had been her home for so many years. She could barely make out Frederick's figure in the dark courtyard. In spite of the gleaming full moon, the walls were too high to allow much light to carry, and the four floors of windows were dark and empty, aside from an infrequent guard's torch passing around the white square. She watched his silhouette for a moment, the love of her life, the father of her child. There was something different about his frame tonight. He seemed more confident, more at ease. If he believed in their love, so could she. She took several steps forward, a strange metallic smell lingered in the air. The whole castle held its breath. Then, a door slammed on the other side of the courtyard. Selina turned, panicked. Castle guards stepped out of the shadows, their boots crunching in the new snow and ice. She had prepared a story for them, but they had no interest in speaking. They grabbed her and dragged her towards Frederick's shadowy figure. But it wasn't him. The broad chest she loved so much about Frederick was actually the shape of a large starched coat. The dark shape's somewhat short stature wasn't a result of bending over flower beds too much. That slightly curved back had been caused by age. It was Ludwig. He had been waiting for her. A torch was lit, and she could see his sinister smile glinting orange in the dim light. Her father emerged from the shadows. St. Lita's mind could not work fast enough to put the pieces together. The smell of blood was overpowering everything else. Her vision swam. Panic raced through her veins. She could not stop herself from throwing up. She backed away slowly until her knees gave out, and she fell to the snow-covered cobblestone. But there was more than snow beneath her. The white was stained red. Red and melting. Fresh. There was blood on her hands. More blood than she'd ever seen. She didn't have time to wonder where it came from. She had to find Frederick. Ludwig cleared his throat loudly the sound echoing off the stone. She could not meet his gaze. He took three easy strides toward her and lifted her chin so she was forced to look at him. 
He told her that the servants here were handsomely paid to report any indiscretions. He was not an unkind man. He had let her have her fun before the wedding. But he would not be left by some slip of a girl that had fancied herself in love with a peasant. Selina tried to remain calm despite the thunderous beating of her own heart. The iron smell from the ground made her eyes water. But it was his casual cruelty towards her that made one traitorous tear slip down her cheek. Frederick would have gotten away. He was smart. He would save her. Ludwig caught the tear with his finger. She recoiled in revulsion. Selina looked to her father for sympathy or an explanation, but he would not even look at her. He stood near Ludwig like a guard dog prepared for attack. Selina set her lip, felt the heat rise within her. She swore at him, glaring that she would never marry him. She knew what love was, and Ludwig wasn't capable of it. Ludwig retreated into the shadows for a moment. She could hear the tear of flesh and the cracking of bones, but she could not understand what was happening. A moment later, he returned. He threw something at her feet and called it a token of his benevolence. It was a human heart. With sickening clarity, Frederick's loss crashed into her, nearly knocking the air out of her body. It was the only piece of him that she would ever get, and she could not bring herself to touch it. Ludwig headed in the opposite entrance with some of the guards. Her father, however, stayed rooted to his spot. She tried to speak to him, but he would not utter a sound. Moments passed as Selina lost the battle with her own emotions and began to sob. She felt the press of a hand on her shoulder and looked up. It was not her father. It was a castle guard. He bound her hands in irons. She screamed at her father to do something, to stop this. Finally, hands spoke. He told her that actions had consequences and she would now meet hers. Several guards moved forward and pulled her off the ground. They bound her ankles in irons. Her bag was flung near Frederick's body. The guards shoved her forward. They forced her to retrace her steps, but they did not stop at her door. Instead, they carried her further through the castle until they reached a section that she had never seen before. The smell of filth was overwhelming, and Selina swallowed the bile that rose up her throat. Men shook their chains against bars, calling out taunts to the guards. As far as she knew, no woman was to be kept in this area. They threw her in a small room in the bowels of the great building, where no light could reach. The air smelled like wood and wine. She struggled to her feet and tried to reach the door before it slammed shut. But she was too late. Hours into a fitful rest, she heard the scraping of stone near her. In the light, she could only see a vague shadow of a man in front of her. Her tired heart wanted it to be Frederick, but the man was moving his hands back and forth in a repetitive motion. Frederick had never had a task like that. 
he would never let his work be so rote. Selina ignored the man as he slowly rose in the doorway, scraping away. Frederick would have loved, no, Frederick will love this room when he comes. The simple smooth stones and thick walls, turning the space to a cloister, he taught her to find comfort in the quiet. She took a deep breath, shut her eyes, and tried to find that comfort now. She felt the baby kick and looked up at the fading light. But it wasn't fading. It was being blocked out. The man was a bricklayer. Tales of a white lady wandering the halls of Drogsholm Castle have persisted for years, with many sources citing Selina Bovles as her true identity. Selina is said to have fallen for a laborer on the premises. They decided to flee when she discovered she was pregnant. As punishment, her father imprisoned her in a cell and then walled it up. To this day, she wails for her lost love. Many people believe the story to be just a rumor until the early 1930s. The castle requested plumbers to fix some of the pipes in a less trafficked part of the castle. When they opened the walls, they discovered a skeleton in a white gown. But that isn't the only corpse that had a too long stay in the castle. Up next, there's another, more famous man who ended up on display in the worst possible way. Now, back to the story. The highest profile ghost at Drogsholm Castle is James Hepburn, the fourth Earl of Bothwell and the third husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. After Mary abdicated, Bothwell fled to Denmark and ended up as a prisoner of the Danish king, Frederick II. Mary, who had been detained in England, dissolved her marriage, leaving Bothwell as a loose end, easily gotten rid of. He was killed and buried at the Fogvillie Parish Church in 1578. But he didn't stay buried. And we all know what happens when we don't let the dead rest. Snow White was Enya's favorite fairy tale. She had made a pretend slate to sleep on at night, waiting for a servant girl to pull a ring off her finger and a handsome prince to sit by her bedside. While she eventually outgrew her pretend slate, she never outgrew the idea of her prince. It was fate when the announcement came from Drogsholm. 295 years after he had perished, the body of James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell, would be on display in the castle. Rumors flew that he looked as he had when he died, that decay had not yet touched his corpse. He wasn't a prince, but he'd been married to a queen, and that was good enough for Enya. The Earl must have been devastated to discover the betrayal of his queen and lover. Enya would act as a comforting shoulder when James awoke from his centuries-long slumber. She would find a way to make him love her, as she had been waiting most of her life to love him. Dressed in her finest gown, she hired a carriage to help her make the arduous four-hour journey from her home in Haggistead to the royal's residence. 
anticipation crackled inside her, and she tried to imagine the face of her new beloved seated alongside her. But she couldn't quite conjure his features, leaving instead a blank canvas of a face that would be filled in on her first glimpse of him, parting the sea of visitors, all hoping for a follow-up to the excitement of the 1862 World Exposition in London. She felt his hand against her own, as if he were really there. As her prince's voice had not yet returned to him, Enya was forced to do the talking for both of them. She spoke of the weather and her plans for when they moved to his illustrious estate in Scotland. When they pulled up to the royal family's castle, he disappeared. She tried to steady her breathing as she stepped out of the carriage and into her new life. The castle itself had clean arches and whitewashed stone. It gleamed like a beacon, drawing people to its hallowed halls. She was just a commoner now, but soon she would have her own large estate, and she would make it gleam as this one did. But there were darker parts of the building, outfitted with pointed arches and metalwork sharpened to the point of a spear, where the tang of iron tinged the air. Her beloved had been held within one of those cells. For five years he had languished in a small hole. The guards had tied him to a post and starved him. Their ears had been sewn shut by their own greed, and James could not get them to open to him, no matter how hard he tried. The palace courtyard was crowded with onlookers, vultures creatures that fed off of gossip and tried to lure young women away from their fates and into the hands of their foul sons with fetid breath and no dreams. Enya held her head high as she weaved around them. There were bigger things planned for her than a death in the smiling, crooked beak of a flesh-eater. She approached the glass slowly. The murmurs from the crowd made it hard to think, and the overcast skies dimmed the light. And yet, somehow, there was a beam of sunlight shining on his face. He was not the dashing prince she had expected. The bridge of his nose curved sharply outward, ending in a much smaller button nose. His lips were thin and blue, pulled down in a perpetual look of distaste. His skin was sallow and gray. He had the hands of an aristocrat, but the skin was shriveled in places. But he was still an earl, and she could learn to love his face, just as she already loved the rest of him. And yet, as soon as the thought had entered her brain, his features began to move and change. An aquiline nose replaced the one that had been there moments before, his lips colored to a beautiful cherry red, and one of his eyes opened, holding her gaze. She put her hand up to the glass, his mouth moved, but she could not hear what he was saying. The screeching of the vultures was too loud. People pushed in on her from all sides. She brought her head closer to the glass, hoping to hear him. His head turned to meet hers. They gazed at each other for a second, before another vulture pushed her aside. More of them swarmed around her. She could barely make out the shape of his head as she was jostled farther and farther away from her soulmate. 
These creatures were going to devour him. They would pick the flesh from his bones and leave his eyes as a reminder of what she had looked up at but could not have. They were cruel and heartless. She could not let them win. Enya pushed and shoved her way forward. The crowd swelled around her and she fought them off. She scratched at the ones she could reach and screeched back at those she couldn't. A path cleared for her and she made her way closer to the front. But the vultures had already left their mark. James's body was changing again. Those cherry red lips were peeling off of his face. The skin around his eyes swelled until even his deep brown irises were obscured. The skin on his hands sloughed off. He was fading. One of the onlookers had done this to him. They cursed her prince, and she was running out of time to set him free. And you banged on the glass, but it would not give. She struck it over and over again as the steady thump of guard's boots loomed ever closer. If they got a hold of her, she would never be able to save him. The rest of his body bloated, and the colors changed from peach to orange to a sickly green and gray. His nose slid off his face. Enya punched through the glass case. She tried to rip a ring off his finger, but the whole hand came off. She tried again. This time the ring slipped free, and she heard the faintest intake of breath. He was alive. She had done it. She broke more of the glass away from him and ignored the stinging of her arm the slick, warm liquid sticking to her fingers. Enya ducked her head into the hole she had made. Glass ripped into her scalp, but it did not dissuade her. The guards were struggling to hold her, yelling at her to stop, but she couldn't, not yet. Enya rested her head against James's chest and felt the faintest hint of a heartbeat. She pushed through the darkening of her vision and crawled further. Her lips almost touched his before the guards pulled her away. Pain stabbed at her sides as she yelled for her prince to save her. But the glass case was empty. Earl James Hepburn was executed in 1578 after a five-year imprisonment. He was buried on the castle grounds but in 1868, the keepers of Drogsholme decided to disinter their most famous prisoner and put him on display. His corpse was considered to be in remarkable condition, but exposure to the elements soon caused the body to decay. The body remained in a glass case on display until 1973. Queen Margrethe II received a request from the Hepburn family to take his body off display and she obliged. The queen commissioned a brand new oak coffin lined with zinc, where James Hepburn still rests today. But many visitors to the castle claim that while his body may be at rest, his spirit roams the grounds. There have been sightings of James riding a horse through the courtyard and the sound of a carriage following behind. If you decide to leave the ghosts outside, there's another reminder of James Hepburn inside the castle. 
The Earl paced so frequently within his cell that he left a worn-down path on the floor. Drogsholm Castle is a luxury hotel now, with two restaurants, one of which just got its first Michelin star. The brick depths of the castle have been turned into a wine cellar and tasting room. The 100 ghosts mostly behave themselves, though Bothwell and the white and gray ladies make frequent appearances, and the hotel and restaurants do remarkable business, despite the potential for a supernatural soiree. But history doesn't forget, and neither does Drogsholm Castle. As was true centuries ago, joy remains above while sorrow waits below. The only thing that has changed is that sorrow languishes in the past, and joy fills the present. In 1965, Danish author Thorkil Hansen wrote, for a while serving as a prison, Drogsholm was also the setting for the fine life of the lord of the estate. The king came to visit, and there were hunting parties in the castle hall, weddings in the chapel, and balls in the great hall. The guests ate saddle of venison and drank spiced wine, danced and courted, and if occasionally a half-smothered wail could be heard from behind the walls, it interrupted neither the cheerful laughter nor the tender kisses. It might, after all, just be a calving cow or a stallion whinnying in the stables. Drogsholm does not smile again, but it looks like life. Happiness and wretchedness sleep under the same roof, and in the winter nights, the storm rides in from the Katigat and covers it all, howling in the chimneys. And then it is already out over the wide La Mayfjord, and then La Mayfjord is already dried out and the tears have dried away. And what does it matter now who shed tears of joy and who shed tears of misery? It is all the same at Drogsholm. But when the misery has been so dark and so deep for so long, be careful, lest the joy of a divine meal be interrupted by a woman in tears who runs down the corridor, only to disappear halfway. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Drogsholm Castle, amongst the many sources we used, we found History Scotland Magazine's report on the castle extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>